I'll probably get married when I'm 30 because 20 is way too young. I am definitely gonna get married. I know who it is. Abby Petty. Go! Oh, I don't want to. I would get married with a unicorn because it's unicorn that cute and they're fluffy. I want to be engaged to someone I know I can like, I know I, I can love, I know um, I trust these, this person. I know that my heart picks him and my um, brain has to pick him too. When I get married, I hope I have a wife that loves Jesus and she prays with me, she helps me struggle through hard things and we're just a great couple. I would hope to be married to someone that is very, very happy, who is always optimistic and has a lot of fun doing simple things. He just loves you for who you are, and I love him for who he is. Every boy wants that. Yes. Yes, and every girl does too. Well, I think we need to pray for that young lady's future husband. She's got very clear outlined expectations at a young age. So, so glad that you're here as we jump into this series on marriage. Welcome if this is your first time or you're newer to the Eagle family. Welcome to everybody who's joining us online. One of our families let me know last week that they would be joining us from a beach in Jamaica. So Dawn and Ernie Hickman, we are so happy for you. We are rejoicing. You just missed a wonderful week of weather in Indiana. I don't know why you would retreat to Jamaica. I don't understand, but we're happy. Whoever, wherever you're at and wherever you're joining us, we're jumping into this series on marriage. And when I bring up this topic, I know there's a whole wide array of responses when you heard that Pastor Eric's starting a marriage series. Right? One of my friends sent me, he says he's going to wear some rib protectors through the series, he said, because he felt like his elbow, the elbow from the side was going to get a workover for the whole thing, right? So some of responses in that and recognizing there are some of you who are just new, recently engaged or newlyweds and you're kind of riding that wave. And, and then there's others of you who, if you were honest, you're going through a really tough stretch in your marriage. And that happens in times, right? There are just seasons of marriage, much like seasons of life. Some of them go much smoother than others. And you might be in one of those stretches that's really complicated and difficult. Or, and then others of you just in a very ordinary space. Maybe you're just kind of ticking off the routines and between the family life and the work life and the kids and the home front. It's just very ordinary and routine. And then there's another category of folks who, when a subject of marriage is raised, this brings up a really just kind of a lot of deep-seated pain and some grief and loss. Some in the room have lost their spouse, and it would be in the category of much too soon. Like they never would have chosen to say goodbye to their spouse as young as their spouse, whether it was a, a health-related or an accident or something like that. And then there's others of you who are living on the end of, the, of a divorce situation where your spouse exited in a way, and you're feeling a different kind of death and grief and loss in all of that. And so you've got this whole wide array, right? And then we've got students in the room and those of you who are single. So let me just say this up front. My prayer for the series has been this, that no matter where you are from single to single again to widow to a divorce situation to a student 
and then to other singles in the room who are just longing not to be single anymore. And they, they're waiting, and the waiting continues to go on and on, and that brings up its own set of stuff. So whether, wherever you're at on that spectrum, my prayer has been that the Lord would meet you in a very personal way, and as we get into the scriptures on the various subjects we'll be covering, that He knows right where you are, and He knows exactly what it is you personally need in this series. I'm resting in that. And for those of you who are younger and you're, gonna, and you're looking down the pike, if the data is right, the researchers say that 90 plus percent of people who live in North America at one point will choose to get married. 90 plus percent at one point are going to make this choice. So for those of you who are looking down the pike, my prayer that the series can provide a, a good discernment grid, kind of a way to navigate the future relational choices that are before you. And even those of you who are a little bit farther along in life, whatever the next chapters hold, maybe this will be some healing grace in all of that. So let's open up our Bibles together. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're beginning. Easy to find that. So Genesis chapter 1, so first page, first chapter, first verses is where we're going to get started. And to help kind of frame this up, 27 years ago, here's what Kendra and I look like. This is our wedding day 27 years ago. She hasn't changed a bit. I mean, she looks exact same. And some of you are like, what, who is that guy? So yeah, that's what Pastor Eric looked like with a whole big old head of dark hair and I, I tell Kendra all the time, do you remember when my hair was like big and bushy and wavy? And she says, it was never bushy. It was never wavy. So 27 years ago, this, this will be 28 years this coming June, we walked the aisle, Community Heights Alliance Church, Newton, Iowa. We walked the aisle, the pastor pronounced us husband and wife in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And my family had, caught, had some, like, I think we did some doves released, and we had the reception, and then we went off to the honeymoon, and then we moved to Indianapolis into our first apartment together, and then it was just happily ever after, right? That's why I've entitled this morning, The Secret to Happily Ever After. And by God's grace, I can say that for our 27 going on 28 years of marriage, God has been abundantly good to Kendra and I. I can say to you that it's been a genuinely good experience in a husband and wife. Like I can say with integrity that our marriage is growing. And I can say with integrity that God's way is just the right and better way. We haven't been perfect at it by any means. We've had our own seasons when it's been tough stretches and some great seasons and some not so great. That's just life. That's how it goes. But over the long trajectory of the 27, 28 years, I'd say that our desire has been at the core of our marriage to seek God, to try to do it His way, to look to the Lord and His strength, as the psalmist says, to seek His face. And I believe the greatest gift Kendra and I have given to each other in our marriage has been the pursuit of something that's beyond our marriage. And I think if you don't get anything else out of this whole series, I say as we jump into things, the framework for marriage is first set in this, which is why we're starting in Genesis 1. That the greatest gift you can give your spouse is a wholehearted pursuit and devotion to the God who gave you life. That's the greatest gift you can give them. And to be caught up with something that's bigger and beyond marriage is actually the greatest gift you can give your marriage. 
in a sense, the way marriage really flourishes is by not making it the singular focus. And so for us, we've attempted to do that. Again, not perfectly, but I can say going on 28 years, it's, it's in that place where I'm just so grateful to have a spouse who's equally devoted to love the Lord, her God, with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength as I seek to love the Lord, my God. And what a gift that is. And some of you are in the place where you long for that for your spouse. And so I hope some of the things we get into will be tools on how to navigate that. So here's where Genesis 1 starts, all right? We're going to look at three kind of foundational truths out of Genesis 1 that would be the answer to the question, the secret to happily ever after. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So notice the Bible starts with where everything starts. In the beginning, God. Now, some of you say, well, where did God come from? There's never a time when He wasn't. Let your mind wrap around that. So, God has no beginning and no end. So, the Bible starts with where all reality starts. God. In the beginning, God. He's the great beginner from which everything gets its beginning. There's never a time when God wasn't. And that's why the Bible says, in the beginning, God, and He's on the scene, and then out of His presence... He creates. And notice now, I want you to look at the condition that creation is described in. He created the heavens and the earth, verse 2. Now the earth was, circle in your Bibles, formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So I want you to look at that phrase, formless and empty. I think that's a good commentary on life where you push God to the margins. I think the conclusion is it turns formless and empty. Whatever you choose to do without God at the center, it has this lining. It has this atmosphere of formless and empty to it. You can build a marriage without God. Now, I wouldn't recommend it, and we'll get into why in a minute, but I mean, it's hard enough to do it with God. I can't imagine doing it without Him. But it goes to a place that Genesis 1 calls formless and empty when you push God to the margins, when He's not at the center. You can build a career without God, just turns formless and empty. You can raise kids without God, it just goes formless and empty. Whatever you choose to do without God as the centering reality of it, Genesis 1-2 reminds us, it just drifts to this place where it's formless and empty. And I was reading this week, um, this author Philip Zimbardo, he's president or he's chair of Western Psychological Foundation. He wrote this book, The Demise of Guys. Isn't that a great title? Some of you ladies are like, yeah, I want to read that book, The Demise of Guys. Listen to what he said in his book. He said, before a young man today turns 20, he will have spent 10,000 hours playing video games. That's half the time it takes to earn a bachelor's degree. Now, can you picture this? So, do you think one thing we do with our next generation growing up, do you think if we could just invest a little bit less time trying to save some fantasy land on a screen and a little bit more time trying to work with your own personal world, like actual reality and preparing yourself for a real life, can you imagine what might happen? And this author was raising the point of just the vacuum of what's happening in the relational world and the demise of the male-female relationship bond centered around this idea that we get so caught up with a screen in a fantasy world that we're not dealing with the real world. 
and our real life. It's the epitome in my mind of formless and empty. If you're going to build something around formless and empty, where does that go? Now watch now, watch through the verses, because watch what happens now. God gets involved in creation. He says, I'm going to take this formless and empty, and from verse 3 through verse 31 of chapter 1, here's what you see God do. God brings shape to the shapeless, and He fills the empty. That's what God does. He brings shape to the shapeless, and He fills the empty. And you see this all through creation. You look at verse Three and following, he says, let there be light, and there was light. So he separates the, the sky from the land. He creates the sky, and then he fills the sky with sun, moon, and stars. He separates the waters from the land mass, and then he fills the, the land with like vegetation and plants and animals, and he fills the oceans and the sea with fish and all kinds of aquatic creatures. You see, he's bringing shape to the shapeless, and he's filling the empty. That's what God does when he gets involved with things. And that's a vision for what can happen in your marriage and in your family. So you might come into this series and you might feel like a lot of things have gone down the path of formless and empty. May not across the board, but you could point to several of them. The pathway that I want you to see here, kind of the first foundational point is when you begin to move into a God-centered marriage, what you'll see is he begins to bring shape to what's shapeless, and he begins to fill what's empty. And that work, as Genesis 1 is concluded, look all the way through. If you want to circle these in your Bible, you can. At the end of verse 4, at the end of verse 10, look at the phrase, good. Verse 10, good. Verse 12, good. Verse 18, good. Verse 21, good. Verse 25, good. So at all this creative work, if you look through Genesis 1, it's the it's the beginning of all the subject, cosmology, botany, zoology, anthropology, all in six days of creation. I would lobby that that was a productive week. He created the whole thing in six days, and his commentary is all that he's doing is good, and then verse 31, he looks back, all has, he has made, and he says it's very good. And the Hebrew word there I put in your notes is the word tobe, and it means this. It means beautiful, bountiful, and excellent. And there's your kind of first foundational principle, right? That God takes the formless and the empty. And as we move into this context of doing life with God, notice that marriage is first set in the context of life with God. The Bible knows nothing of a marriage that's formed and shaped without God in the middle of it because God created it. It makes sense to me that if He created it, He knows best how it works which is fairly ironic in our culture today when we think about the confusion we have on the dialogue of marriage. The Bible describes it as when the creation gets together and tries to speak to the creator about we need to edit his original plan or we need to kind of modify what he was originally thinking. It's the epitome of creation dictating to creator when it's supposed to be the other way around. God fashioned marriage. It was his idea. He designed it. He formed it. He knows best how it works. That's why Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God. And then he creates man and woman in his image, and then he's the one. He came up with this idea. Some of you in your married life are going, who came up with this crazy idea to tell a man and a woman to get married? God did. So you can blame him for that. It was his idea. We'll get into why's as we get along in this series, but he's the one who fashioned it. He came up and he designed it. In its original state, his vision for it was to be bountiful, bountiful and beautiful and excellent and good. 
His plan and his purpose was that man and woman would be united and the bond would be declared filled and shaped with tobe, with goodness. That was his plan. That was his purpose. And that's what you see there in chapter 1. Now, he builds on it, chapter 2. So, if you're familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, when you read Genesis 2, you're like, didn't he just say all this? And Genesis 2 is just a recount in Genesis 1, but focusing it on Adam and Eve. So, flip over to Genesis 2, and here's where he unpacks. Look at verse 18. The Lord God says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Circle in your Bibles in verse 18, not good. The first time in Scripture that that phrase is used. Now, sin isn't on the equation yet. Remember, all through chapter 1, everything's good. It's very good. Good, good, tobe, tobe. The first time he says not good is right there in verse 18. And what's the connection to not good? What's he saying is not good? A lack of companionship, right? The animal kingdom's all there, but there's a, there's, he's not finished, he's not completed in his creation account, which jumped down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had made and taken out of him, and he brought her to man. So the first foundational principle to the secret to happily ever after is this journey from formless to empty, from formless to, empty to being shaped and filled to experience God's original vision of goodness in the marriage. And the second one is here in, in Genesis 2, this journey from it's not good to be alone to this journey, I'm going to create a companion, a helper suitable for you. Now, in the premarital process with couples, I often get to the place with them somewhere halfway through the, the marriage counseling. I usually stop and we start working through the ceremony. And I say, hey, when we get to the ceremony, I'd like you to write your own vows. Now, that process itself, a lot of times, it, it's not that I'm going to leave them completely, I'll help, but I want them to write their own vows because it's really their vows. Like, it's what they're vowing, it's the covenant and promise they're making to each other. It's not my vows for them, like, that's, that's not the point, right? So, I'm, I'm wanting them to write their own vows and go through the work of really thinking and praying and reflect, like, what, what do you want to say before God and before your friends and family to this other person? And so, there's a general trend in how this goes. So usually like a month or so before the ceremony, the bride sends me like a couple of paragraphs, very well done, thoughtful, and really unpacked, tons of good fuel to work with, and I just kind of shape them into vows. And then usually we get into like the week of the wedding, and I'm still kind of waiting on the groom, right? Waiting on the groom's words, and usually I get a text message or an email that says, I'm kind of struggling, and can you kind of throw me a softball, kind of throw me a bone or something, help me out here a little bit, and but usually by the end of the week, we can get three or four or five sentences out and we, you know, try to help them and rally. And that, that's usually the trend. Not always, but generally. Well, this one wedding a few years ago, like, I mean, the groom was just going in the tank over this scene. And so it was the day of the wedding. I still didn't have his vows. So I always have a backup, right? Pastors learn this time. Hey, you have a backup. You just got to, you know, you just got to be ready for this. So I, the day of the wedding, he emails me. And he says, okay. I've been working so hard on this. I finally came up with this one sentence. That's all he had in his vows. Here's, here, here was his email. I appreciate your work ethic and your desire for self-improvement. Now, ladies, let's think about that. First thought I had was, man, did I fail them in premarital. That was horrible. I clearly didn't help them enough. I appreciate your work ethic 
and your desire for self-improvement. Needless to say, when we got to the ceremony later that afternoon, none of that was in his vows. I just rewrote the whole thing, and at the end of his vows, he kind of looked at me, and he just gave me the wink. He's like, nice, that was good. I'm like, dude, I just bailed you out big time. And she was so happy. She's like, oh, you wrote those. That's so amazing. And I'm sure they're riding off to glory right now, all that good stuff. But when, you, when a couple writes their own vows, I just pulled out some others through the years that just, I want you to see kind of a theme that comes out here. Because when someone writes their vows, something starts surfacing. Couples say things like, you're my rock, my strength, my comfort, my everything. You're the reason I get up each day. I can't imagine living one moment without you. When I think of love, you define love for me. Oh, boy. Those of you who've been married a bit, you look back upon those words and you go, oh boy, that's going to be some rough waters for, right? I call it this. Here's what I'm calling it. This is the tyranny of the misplaced pursuit. Stay with me here. Here's what the vows often reveal. That there's, this, there's this kind of this pull inside of us, and I think our culture contributes to it that we tend to take what's formless and empty on the inside of our own lives, and we tend to look and believe that if we just meet that special someone, if I just meet that special someone, and I walk the aisle, and I'm pronounced husband and wife, and I ride off into the sunset as a married couple, then all that's formless and empty, he or she is going to help bring shape and fill it. Like, in other words, you take the stuff in here that's kind of broken down, and you want fulfillment, and you want healing, and you want rescue, and you turn to a person, and you say, fill me, heal me, love me, complete me, and you, you turn to your spouse, and you try to envision your spouse to be something that God never intended them to be. Your spouse is not your Messiah. They're not your God, they're not your Savior, they're not your healer, they're not your rescuer, they're certainly not your rock and your refuge and your fortress. That is not God's intent for the spouse. Shocker, your spouse can only ever be your spouse. That's it. And do you see, husbands and wives, do you see this? Do you see the pressure it places on a marriage to try to extract out of the marriage relationship what God really intended to be dealt with here. Do you see why the greatest gift you can give your spouse is a heart that is fully devoted and fully surrendered to God? You look to your fulfillment and your purpose and your meaning. You look for healing and restoration vertically with the Lord. You get yourself centered right here, and then you're in the best possible place to give yourself to another person. You can't take half of you and expect to give to another half. I think culturally we think half a person plus half a person equals whole marriage. No, half a person plus half a person equals disaster. It's whole person plus whole person equals wholeness in marriage. I didn't say perfect. We've all got stuff we got to work through, but there's a wholeness. There's a completeness of your identity as a young man, as a young woman, that you're fulfilled, you're defined, your identity, your value, and your worth is not found in the marriage relationship. If you try to extract it out there, you're just going to live in perpetual disappointment. It's classic unmet expectations. And here's what I see. It's 
the, misplaced, the tyranny of the misplaced pursuit, people conclude, oh, it's a misplaced spouse. I need to get a new spouse. That's not the issue. The issue isn't the spouse issue. It's the pursuit issue. Are you with me in this? So here's what Ben Stewart said. He's one of the recommended resources I put in your notes there. Ben Stewart said this, when you have a source of life, you are a source of life. Do you see that? If you are disconnected from a source of life, your oxygen tank, then you will attempt to suck life out of someone else. Oh, you will be tempted to use people to try to get your, get your sense of self-validated. Man, that's sabotaging so many marriages today. And we've got to have a candid conversation about this, that God's intent that man would not be alone and he creates Eve to have a companionship with Adam, not to have fulfillment in one another, but they would collectively have fulfillment in God. That the pursuit has to be a wholeheartedness towards the Lord. He's the centering reality. And it just releases so much pressure off of the marriage relationship. And some of you are right there. Some of you are having battles this way that if you'd step back and look at it, a lot of the battles this way really need to get sorted out this way first. Here's a healthy sign in marriage, like conflict situation. You know you've come to a mature and healthy place in your marriage when you're able to, when you hit tough places and you have to have difficult conversations, that you're able to sift through those dialogues and not in an avoidance tactic, but with honesty and integrity, say to your spouse, hey honey, I think what's happening here is I think this might be a, a me and the Lord issue, and I'm really kind of projecting it as a me and you issue. There's some things I need to get sorted out in my own heart between the Lord, and then I think I'm going to be in a better place to come to you. Does that make sense? Like that, now I understand that takes some time to get to that, but that's a really healthy place for marriage. Because sometimes the things that you think are just Adam and Eve issues are really Adam and God or Eve and God issues. And that that then becomes the, the way that you can kind of look at, I think it might be a misplaced pursuit. I think I might be looking for you to come through in ways that God never intended you to come through for me. And when you do that, it releases a pressure on the relationship in a way. So like Adam, Eve can only ever be your spouse. She cannot be all the things that what, she cannot be your, your healer, your rescuer, your redeemer, your, what? and Eve, Adam can only be your spouse. He can't be your Messiah. You can't be the Holy Spirit in each other's lives. There's a whole lot of spouses trying to be the Holy Spirit in each other's lives. Just, just relax and be able to look back towards a God-centered and say, equal pursuit of God takes pressure off of this relationship. So you move from formless and to empty to shaped and filled, and you move from this place of like not good to be alone to a real true sacred companionship, and you have to sift through this tyranny of the misplaced pursuit. Now look at the third element here. Stay with me. Verse 24, last section in chapter 2 gets into this. So verse 24, chapter 2, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. In your Bibles, I want you to circle leave and united. So this principle is the idea that there's this journey from leaving to united. One of the counselors I work with, he, he said this to me last year, and we're, we're kind of working with several couples trying to help him out. And he said to me, he said, Eric, in his experience in working with marriages, 
if they don't do their leaving work before they get married, they end up having to do their leaving work in the marriage, and that gets pretty messy. Think think this through. there's There's a natural progression in human development here that's supposed to happen. That as we grow and mature, notice the Bible says you're to leave your father and mother before you unite. In other words, you can't fully unite until you leave. And there's a whole lot of marriages that are struggling to unite because one or both haven't ever left. You following me? The the leaving has to do with the, the emotional connectivity to the family of origin. That there's a natural progression that comes where you grow in independence and then you're released into young adulthood in a way that you're able to kind of mature and develop and stand on your own two feet and own your own faith and walk with God with integrity and be your own person and have a, a level of differentiated self that you're able to differentiate yourself from all the pressures and opinions of others and be your whole and complete self in God. That's like the leaving work that needs to happen before the uniting work takes place. And if that counselor is right, then a lot of the work that I and others in this space deal with is, if, that's, if there's a lot of unresolved stuff in those early developmental years, then when you get into marriage and you bring out unresolved stuff together, you work through that dynamic of leaving in the marriage. And do you see what ingredients that creates? And so there's a couple applications here on this point, right? So some of you are in a season of your life where it's your very own children are hitting the stage, right? They're now have met a significant other, maybe engaged or maybe recently married, and you, mom and dad, are on this receiving end of watching your child grow up and kind of form their own lives and and make their own decisions and become increasingly independent. Before your marriage, what's the before you're married, what's the number one human relationship the scripture says should be there? The top priority in human relationship before marriage is what? Honor your father and mother, right? It's your relationship with your mom and dad. So the pecking order, right, is mom and dad is like your number one relationship. When you get married, here's what happens. Genesis 2 says this. When you get married, follow me here, the number one relationship moves from mom and dad in the number one slot. That has to go down, and then husband and wife moves to the number one slot. That right there. That brings a lot of stuff to the surface. Are you tracking? Some of you are living that out from a mom and dad dynamic. And your discipline of of what you have to practice as a mom and a dad working through this is you're to bless and release with minimal meddling. All right, I'm going to say that again because I don't think that quite landed where it needed to land. I'm trying to help out some of our younger folks here on this, okay? So some of you who are right now working through the process of watching your young adult move off in greater independence, I know they used to call you twice, three times, four times a week. I know they used to process everything that's going on in there. I know that's healthy. That's part of the formative young adult growing up years. That's good. That's healthy. But they have to work through the leaving now. Mom, dad, they've got to leave so that they can unite And you can't keep tethering and pulling them back in in a way. You've got to bless and release. And you've got to minimize the meddling. I know you just just want them to call more. I know you just want them to engage more, visit more. It's all, I know, I get it. But here's the gift. You've got to give them the ability to unite this. 
unite. They can't unite if there isn't this shift, which has all kinds of dynamics to it, holidays and birthdays and all that stuff. I get it. Now, this isn't grounds for all of you. Adam, this isn't grounds for you never to call your mom, never to engage. Now, listen, I know my mom's listening too. She's like, yeah, Eric, you need to call me more. I know, mom, I need to call more. But here's the deal, right? On both ends of the spectrum, it's a parent's role to bless and release, and it's the child's role, right, to leave and unite. So some of you who are new into the marriage scene, like you can't keep kind of pouring out all the emotional connectivity to mom and dad that you used to have and have nothing left for your spouse. That doesn't work. So instead of calling mom five nights a week on your drive time, you ought to save some of those words and some of those processing for your spouse. That's the leaving and uniting. Does this make any sense or am I just kind of, are you tracking here? And so you can hold me to it, right? As my girls continue to grow up, you're like, yeah, wait, Simpson, you wait till the next half. You're right. I gotta have, I'm to live this out with all of you. But I'm just trying to help you because I see this is a real struggle. And I think we're forcing some young people into doing leaving work in the marriage by not helping the leaving work happen in the development. And I think that's a big deal. And I think it's something we've got to really own and work on together as a community and hold ourselves to it. So the, the secret to happily ever after. The first principle is this. The journey from formless and empty to shaped and filled. That God created marriage and He knows best how it works. And it works this way. We seek Him. We develop the kind of relationship where He is the primary pursuit of our hearts. And He's the one who brings shape to the shapeless and He fills the empty. He's the pathway to tow. And then secondly, we've got to sift through this journey of the misplaced pursuit. We've got to work the muscles of not looking to your spouse to come through for you in ways that only God has been designed to come through for you. And you might be placing pressures on your spouse in a way to meet you in a space that God never designed for them to meet you in. And you've got to do some work. You've got to do some inner work in here, you and the Lord stuff, so that you can move to your spouse in a healthier place. There's that journey. And then thirdly, we've got we've to have some conversation, some interaction, some prayer, and some thought around this leaving and uniting. Because if we don't get this rhythm done right, I think we're setting ourselves up for some really tough stuff um, down the road this way. So, a couple of resources and assignment for the week. A couple of resources in your notes. I recommend Ben Stewart's book, Single, Dating, Engaged, Married. Outstanding. If you're only going to read one thing through this series, especially if you're in the younger years of life, read that book. Ben Stewart is the one that Ian and, and Brad and Julie and others have been recommending to students for a couple years. Outstanding. And then Paul David Tripp wrote a book, What Did You Expect? That's outstanding as well. That might be especially geared for those of you who have been married a little bit longer. That would be a good uh, tune-up, kind of peel back some layers and examine some stuff. And then I put in your notes kind of application for the week. I'd like for you these three things. The first thing is I'd like you to have a conversation together with your spouse, your significant other. If you're in a dating relationship, something that's going somewhere, have a conversation about today, about this message, and just talk, hey, what stood out to you? What were kind of a takeaway or two question you may have? Just open up to your spouse a little bit on what we talked about this morning. Can we do that? And then secondly, I'd like you to make a commitment every day for the next seven days, sometime during the day that you're praying for your spouse. Something simple. If you want to ask them for something to pray for, then do that. But just pray. 
You don't have to do that with them, right? Just, just pray. It could be drive time. It could be before you go to bed. Whenever you want, just a commitment every day for the next seven days to pray. And then your third step, your third assignment for the week is come back. Don't let week one scare you away from the rest of the series. Next week, the message is entitled Love and War. Don't let that title scare you either. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be in Genesis 3. If I only had one 35-minute conversation to have with a couple about marriage, it's next week's discussion. If I only had one, it's next week. And so I'd like you to come back, and if maybe you've got some people in your life who you, hey, invite them to come and just come. We're just going to pop open the hood, take a look at what's going on underneath the hood of some marriages, and talk very candidly. If Genesis 1 and 2 is a vision about the way marriage should be, Genesis 3 is a picture about the way it really is. And we're going to get into that under the banner of love and war. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for opportunities to get together and to have honest and candid and open conversation about your original plan. This was your idea. You came up with it, and we want to do it your way. We believe you're the wisest and the best. Lord, there's no one like you. And as Jess was reading out of Psalm 29, we need some of that work to be done this month in this series. We need you to, with your voice, Lord, to lift up your voice through the power of your word and through the Spirit, just twist the oaks and strip the forest and shake the deserts, Lord. There's some healing and there's some redemption. There's some work that needs to be done in our hearts uh, towards one another and towards you. And we just want to open ourselves, open hearts, open minds to all that you have for us in this. We want to receive from you and we pray that one of the legacies this community of faith would leave is a legacy of husbands and wives of marriages who are committed to love you and to love one another and to do it God's way. We ask it in Jesus' name. 